Thanks for listening to the Movement Church Podcast. Movement is located in Newport, Kentucky, and you're always welcome to join us on a Sunday morning at 1030. Hope you enjoy this podcast. Right, honey? Right? Yeah, we're working on it. Um, hey, I'm Josh. We haven't met. This is normal. Josh gets emotional and makes stupid jokes all the time. So I'm welcome. Glad, glad that you're here with us this morning. Usually our first and fifth graders, you guys would be uh, exiting the room. You'd be going downstairs for your small group time. That's not happening today because it's the fifth Sunday of the month. And so we say this is a family Sunday. We're going to do church together. And, and I always try to do this. When we have these Sundays, we have younger folks, younger students in the room. I really try to say, like, I don't want to change anything I don't want to edit myself, but I want to include, okay? So we've got the, the activity sheets over here at the, at the check-in station. Grab those, grab some colored pencils, because we have something that I need you guys to do for me. And I, I need not just the students, but I need everybody to do this. I want to give you a challenge. I want to ask you to visualize something. I want you to visualize what you think God looks like. Now, maybe when we were singing that song, you were thinking to yourself, long to look on the face of the one I love. Maybe that was a moment you were thinking about, well, what would that look like? In our first and fifth graders, on your sheets, you have some space where I'd love for you to draw and maybe create something, and I guarantee you're a better artist than me. So don't feel like you have to, like, be shy about it. But I'd love for you to draw what you think God looks like. And for all of us, I'd love to get a mental picture in our heads of what we think God looks like. Now, this is important for a couple different reasons, but we're going to circle back to it. Before we get there, I need to kind of set some things up while we're picturing this, while our students are drawing this. We need to think about this idea of how do we understand what God looks like. I think, I think the, the first answer, and maybe the, the primary answer, or maybe the only answer, and I would contend on that last one, that that's the truth, the only way we can really know what God is like is by reading the Bible. I would say beyond that, we look to Jesus as we read the Bible, and we see what God is like. But I would be remiss if I didn't point out that there are points in the Bible where we see a picture of God that can be kind of disturbing, or can be troubling. And this is what I think, is that what I'm going to talk about today in some of these more disturbing passages, particularly from the Old Testament, is probably a universal thing. That anyone who follows Jesus, anyone who investigates the Bible, will come to points where I'm going to talk about today and will say a couple different things. They might say, I can't make sense of this kind of God. Or they might just say, if this is what God is like, I want nothing to do with him. And so when we look at this, we need to have a moment where we can process this. I'm not trying to get a nice little bow on, on all this stuff, and all these objections or questions or, or thoughts. I'm not trying to explain everything away, but I don't want to do what I think people like myself often do, where we kind of push it to the side. We just kind of look past it. I, I want us to maybe sit with this a little bit more. There's a couple just weird passages of the Bible, and, and there's not a couple, there's many, but a couple that I want to highlight here this morning that are just kind of weird there's a story in 2 Kings chapter 2. And there's this story where some boys were making fun of a bald guy. All right? I'm not going to look at anybody, but bald guys, it could be tough, right? I don't know. But maybe that's a tough thing. But so we get some boys making fun of a bald guy. 
And the prophet, the bald prophet, does something that maybe, maybe sometimes we would want to do this. We would kind of want to make, see this happen. He calls down a curse on the boys. And out of a nearby wooded area come bears, and they maul the boys. They kill the boys. This is a weird story. Like, what are you supposed to do with this? Don't make fun of bald people, apparently, right? There's another story. There's another odd story in the Bible from Deuteronomy chapter 20, where, where God commands his people. Deuteronomy is one of the first five books of the Bible. It's kind of this core teaching. It's kind of like a, a Bible within a Bible for the, for the Hebrews, for the Jews. And they look at this in the Old Testament. They say this, this book, this Deuteronomy, where it teaches us all the things about how we're supposed to be as a people. One of the things that is taught in Deuteronomy chapter 20 is that all these other people groups need to be wiped out. Not, not just defeated or not just like relocated but wiped out you know these these are texts of the bible or maybe you have a conversation with someone who's not a believer and they'll bring up these texts as kind of like a proof text like how can you worship a god who does x and maybe this is x it's almost embarrassing if you're a believer or, or maybe you would read this and you would say i don't care what other people think it horrifies me i'm trying to make sense of this myself so we don't really know what to do with these stories we come back to statements that i think are true i think these statements are true but they kind of have a sound a feel of a cliche we might say things that i think are true like who are we to question god absolutely there's how can i possibly understand the fullness of who god is we can't understand god god does what god wants yes and amen to that but it's not giving us answers we might even say things like the lord works in mysterious ways but like I said, these, it could be these stories like these that I think cause many people to not want anything to do with God, the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, or Jesus. And I can understand that. Because if you start reading the Bible from the beginning, from the front of the book in Genesis, you're going to find a God that, that may shock you at times. There are stories in these ancient writings that lead some to believe that God is harsh, God is unfair, God is cruel. But alongside these passages where God appears to be behaving badly, there are also stories of God's loveness, of his goodness, of his mercy, of his patience. And so how do we make sense of this? Well, here in this series, the big things that we're trying to do in God behaving badly is trying to understand what do we do with these things. These passages where we say, hey, this has been taken a certain way, or this has been used to kind of browbeat people or, or make people feel less, what do we do with these things? And more importantly, how do we have a conversation about the true nature of God or what the, what the scriptures actually say? Because obviously we are working through an ancient document written, you know, some thousands of years ago in other cultures that are foreign to us and other languages that are foreign to us. And we are trying to make sense of this all while knowing that this is God and we cannot fully understand or grasp it. And so it's a challenge. And so today we're asking a very central question, is God violent or peaceful? This is our question for today. Is God violent or peaceful? All throughout this series, we've been kind of using a more personal, more relational name for God. The name of God that we see in the Old Testament, the name Yahweh. It's a bad analogy, but it's close. It's, it's almost like saying this is God's first name. This is God being close to us. So not just some abstract or just some ethereal, some far removed God, but no, a God who is personal and close. Is this God, is Yahweh violent or peaceful. So what do we do with this? How do we make sense of this? 
The truth is, is that in the Old Testament, there are several very graphic and very, to our eyes, graphic depictions of violence. Many of them are troubling. Today, we're going to focus on one violent section of Scripture that I think, think may be the most problematic, or maybe perhaps the most familiar to us when we think about this, but also one of the hardest ones for us to understand. It's the conquest of a people group called the Canaanites, as we read in the Old Testament. But before we get there, let me give you some background. Some 400 years, for over, for over 400 years, Yahweh's people, the people of God, were enslaved. They were enslaved in the Egyptian empire. They were enslaved in very onerous, very horrific, very barbaric slavery. They were often in a place where they were given less than they needed to perform the task and were punished for coming up short. We read that at one point they try to kind of do a, like a population control. They try to, try to thin out the, the slave, enslaved population because they were becoming too numerous. And they start executing newborn boys. We read this, that God's people are enslaved and they're crying out. We read that, that God raises up a leader, one of his own people, this man named Moses. And Moses has this incredible experience with God after he had a past, after he was fleeing because of guilt over a fight with another Egyptian, because Moses was kind of a dual citizen, another Egyptian that turned violent and bloody and actually ended up in death. Moses is on the run from this, has an encounter with God, returns to the people, returns to Egypt, to the empire, and leads, through God's miraculous works, leads thousands of God's people out. God's people are stubborn. God's people are obstinate. Very familiar to us, I'm sure, that we see how, how they, they turn away from the goodness of God. And so for some 40 years, they're wandering in the desert. But eventually, under Moses' successor, a man named Joshua, this military general, they are on the precipice of not just entering a land, a, a piece of, uh, of territory, but the promised land, the promised land that God promised to Abraham. And so it's in this place where they're about to enter in, and God gives certain commands about the people who already live there and wiping them out. So the first time we see this is in Deuteronomy chapter 20. These you might, might find, and I would understand if you did, kind of shocking instructions that Yahweh gives to Moses on how to handle this situation. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 16 through 18. God essentially says, in, these, in those towns that the, that the Lord your God is giving you a special possession. Destroy every living thing. You must completely destroy the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Steelerites. That was not in there. That's a different one. Uh, just as the Lord... They play today, right? That was totally on the spot. You're welcome, Ron. Big Steeler fan. He spit in your coffee, but it's all right. Okay. All right. Back where we were. All right, where were we? We're never going to get through this if this is how it's going to go, but it's all right. So you got to destroy all these people that God has commanded you. This will prevent the people of the land from teaching you to imitate their detestable customs in the worship of their gods, which would cause you to sin deeply against the Lord your God. And then in the book of Joshua, these commands are kind of carried out and they're summarized in Joshua chapter 11. It says, The Israelites completely destroyed every living thing in this city leaving no survivors. Not a single person was spared. And then Joshua burned the city. Joshua slaughtered all the other kings and their people, completely destroying them just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. This is, this is genocide, right? This is stuff that, 
we see in recent history with Hitler in World War II. Is God like that? It's profound questions, right? It's profound, disturbing questions. And if you're here today and you're struggling with questions like this or this particular question, you are not alone. In fact, in fact, I would say you are welcome in places like this where you can honestly explore these things. Not because there is a simple answer just hidden right around the corner, but because, because we can ask these questions. As we say, we don't have to be afraid. We can approach this with humility and get to that point. One of the big reasons why we gather on Sundays, why we gather in small groups through the week, why we, why we come together throughout the week is to support and encourage one another through these hard questions, through these hard events of our lives. Now, like I said, I don't plan on wrapping this up nice and neatly and putting a bow on it because I can't understand the mind of God. I believe that fully. I think the scriptures teach that. But what I can do, what I can do is, is, is kind of provide what I have are just five different kind of arguments Five different ideas, five different thoughts about what we do with passages like this. Five different ways for us to kind of begin to make sense of it. Not to eliminate all things because God is God and we are not, but for us to kind of get our minds around things. And so we're going to list them up on uh, the screen here, but we've got five arguments about violence in the Old Testament. Number one, Yahweh has been very patient with the Canaanites. We read this in Scripture. We read this in Scripture that, that there were some problems that existed hundreds of years before the military conquest began. They, that God is judging these nations for all sorts of things that they did, including exploitation of the poor, misuse of the land, and especially their brutal religious practices that did involve, and in many cases were culminated by child sacrifice. You know, we read in the Bible the story of Abraham where he's told by God to take his son Isaac up on the mountain and, and make him as a sacrifice to God. And we read that and we think, shock, like, how could a father do this with a father with a son who's been long awaited? But God doesn't have Abraham go through with it. God stops him. And Abraham in this moment is probably thinking, well, this is like all the other gods I've ever encountered. This Yahweh is just like the god Molech and all these other gods that are worshipped. You sacrifice children. You're going to show how devoted you are by giving up something so dear. This is normal. But God doesn't go through with it. And so God, I think, Yahweh, I think, is being very patient with the Canaanites, seeing such atrocities and seeing such injustices and seeing something so so incredible. I think it's important to note that Yahweh not only holds them guilty, not only condemns them, but holds his people to the same standard. After the Israelites possess the land, Yahweh gives them clear instructions on how they are to live and warns them if they follow the same path as the people who previously held the land, they will suffer the same consequences. So the first point to consider here is that Yahweh is actually patient. The God of the universe is patient with us. The second thing is this. It appears that Israel attacked military targets, not civilian centers. You know, you know maybe you've, you remember you sang the songs growing up of the story of Joshua and the city of Jericho, right? You know, Joshua, they, they march his people around seven times. They do it for a series of days. They blow horns. They stamp feet. And the walls came tumbling down. Maybe you're familiar with this story. 
Well, Jericho itself is one of the most ancient cities that still exists today. And so they've been able to go in and kind of piece together what the city was like at this time. And it wasn't this bustling metropolis. It was about five acres, maybe less. It was about five acres and it was walled, but it was, it was a small encampment. It was more of a fort than a city. So this is a military center. Like, like, like think about it. They're, they're told that they have to walk around this town, this city, this fort, this place seven times a day. Could you walk around Cincinnati seven times? Could you do the 275 loop seven times? Could you do the 275 loop seven times in your car? Like, probably not. But this is what they've been asked to do because it's a smaller place. It's, it, it's a place that's a military stronghold. So targets like Jericho were much more, if maybe, not, maybe even exclusively, a military target than a civilian center, okay? Third, this is not the strong fighting for Yahweh. This is Yahweh fighting for the weak. This is not God coming alongside the proud and the strong and the already established. This is Yahweh. This is God coming alongside the weak. This is not a professional army. This is a people that were just coming out. They're just a few generations removed from slavery. They have nothing, and God comes to their side. In fact, you can look at some of the strategies that are employed militarily, and you would think this doesn't make sense. It's not that they had military geniuses at the helm, but they had people who are willing to do whatever God told them to do. Like, like, think about Joshua. He's marching around in a time when they, you know, ha- maybe didn't have bows and arrows, but they had slings, they had projectiles, they had javelins, and he's marching around, and their big culmination, their big thing to kick off the attack isn't to sneak in, isn't to send in a special force, it is to blow trumpets. Gideon, another character we read, another military leader, one of the things he does right before a, a very important battle is that all of his men are going down to like this pond or this lake to drink. And depending on whether or not they, they cupped water or they bent down and drank water straight from, the, from their mouths like that, the, he kind of called his entire army and said, well, if you drank water like that, you guys go home. That doesn't make military strategy at all. We read about Jehoshaphat which is another great name for your next kid, Jehoshaphat. There you go. That's a free one. He and his army marched around while singing a song. There was no secrecy to what they were doing. These battles are not the strong kids, it's the wimpy kids. This is a kid with a wiffle ball bat taking on an NFL team. This is the weak going after the strong. And the only reason that Israel wins is because Yahweh is on their side. The fourth one I find, I find highly, highly interesting and highly compelling the fourth issue, the fourth argument here is the language of total destruction is kind of standard battle rhetoric. This is, this is essentially ancient world trash talk, okay? Uh, let me, let me, we, we read these, these passages like, they utterly destroyed them. They left no survivors. We need to recognize this. We see this in other ancient writings. This was used almost as propaganda to talk about how powerful they are. So it's not that God is lying, but perhaps the people of God are twisting the truth like their neighbors would as well. This is how any divisive victory was declared. If your team wins, you might say they slaughtered them. Or, you know, living where we do in the teams we root for, you might say they got slaughtered, right? Like you might like to flip that. This is strong language to communicate a decisive victory, not a literal account of how many people died. In fact, you can look at Scripture, and if you pay attention, you might see this. show you what I mean. Joshua chapter 11, verse 23. It said, so Joshua took the entire land... Just as the Lord had directed Moses. What did the Lord tell Moses to do? To take out everyone, to wipe everything out, to control the land fully, and to remove all the people who lived there. 
Yet two chapters later, Joshua 13 says, When Joshua had grown old, the Lord said to him, You are now very old, and there are still very large areas of land to be taken over. You can also read, and you read about the people that were supposedly wiped out, will show up later in the biblical story. So what's going on there? Perhaps, again, this is conjecture. This is just kind of piecing together what we read here. Perhaps the total, utter annihilation destruction wasn't as total as maybe they said. What we see here is that, that perhaps this is, a, this is a story recounting parts of world history, but more so than just being a history book, this is a people of God saying this is how God comes to us. The final point. Yahweh has the right and is right. He has the right and is right to judge evil. Now, this is where we need some help from our students. I asked you earlier to draw a picture of God. I asked all of you to think about what God would look like in your head. Can I I see what you guys drew or wrote down maybe? Yeah, all right. TJ, okay, TJ, brown hair and has a robe. Okay, all right, I like that. A robe, that makes sense. Looks like Zoe, God loves us. Zoe's, God's got a heart, got a heart on on his shirt there. Okay, what else we got over here? You got some? Oh, you really colored that one in, didn't you? Let's see here. Okay, looks like God's up there in the hills, and he's got, he's got fingers like mine. They're huge. That's awesome. That's good. Yeah, okay. Got God with some hearts. Oh, tell me about this one here. So God's, what's this? Flaming sword. A flaming sword. Now, that's, that's biblical, man. Like, that, the Bible, we see that. Yeah, we see that. Oh, all right, Galen, what do you got, man? Galen's got one here. Looks like, does God have a shield? Just, yeah, okay, God's going to fight for us and protect us. I like that. All those things are interesting. Those things are interesting, and thank you so much, guys, for doing that. I like that a lot. This is interesting because this, this kind of exercise wasn't an original idea. I know that's a shocking thing that I would come up with this on my own. But one of the things I read about this was that one kid in one of these similar exercises wrote something down or drew something where God had two things in his hands. In one hand, he had a lollipop. On the other hand, he had this club. So he's got a lollipop in one hand and a spiked club in the other. And they asked him, this kid's name Brian, they said, Brian, what's this about? And they said, well, when I'm good, I get the lollipop. And when I'm bad, I get the other one. And, and I, think, I think we have to, have to sit with that for a second. We have to sit with this idea for a second because God is powerful. God is a perfect judge. God can do whatever God wants to do. But are we punished? Are we punished on a daily basis? Is God this God that is just looking for a fight, looking to punish us? Is God this cosmic policeman? But if we say that God has the right to judge, then what do we do with this? In fact, I think it's interesting that if you ask people, this has been backed up by studies and different, different kind of polls, that if you ask people, who goes to heaven? Who goes to heaven? People generally will say one of two things. They'll say everybody goes to heaven, or they'll say good people go to heaven. Well, if everyone goes to heaven, I'm not going to lie, I kind of like that idea. I do. But if we say everyone goes to heaven... And we look at the scriptures, we see some things that don't line up. If we say everyone goes to heaven, then we say, well, then 
perhaps God is not a good judge. Perhaps God does not have a sense of justice about him. And I have a real problem with that. Not just personally, but because of Scripture. Or if we say that, that just good people go to heaven, well then, I'm out of luck. And so are you. Because this idea that if a good God is going to give us a good standard to work towards, I'm not getting there, and neither are you. The Bible is very clear. The Bible points out the flaws. The Bible uses flawed people time and time and time again to communicate this. At the beginning of, my service, at the beginning of the service, we read uh, from Psalm 51, at the beginning of this gathering. And this was written by a man named David. David's an adulterer. He was a murderer. He was a terrible father. He was somebody who had blood on his hands, and yet God used him in such a powerful way. And so when we think about this idea, well, God has the right to judge, then, then what are we supposed to do with this? Because even with all the points that we've discussed, it can be hard to digest the stories. And I don't want us to do something where we just say, well, that doesn't matter because that was in the Old Testament. But I do want us to see these stories in the Old Testament in light through the lens of the New Testament. The New Testament is this, these stories and these accounts and these letters that were happening from Jesus forward because something changes here. Because what we see over and over again in the scriptures is that Yahweh doesn't prefer violence. Yahweh doesn't opt in for war. Yahweh actually prefers peace. We see that Yahweh is patient. We see that Yahweh kind of holds back. That Yahweh is fighting for justice, not for bloodlust. And what we see in time and time again is that God is not interested in just fighting battles to fight battles. What we see is that God is patient. God wants peace. Going back to that story of this Joshua in the Battle of Jericho, there was this, this woman. There was this woman who, who harbored, who allowed these spies to come in because spies were sent to the city before the battle began. And this Rahab was a woman who did things that have been happening for time and memoriam. She was a prostitute in a military outpost. And she harbored, she allowed these spies to come in, risking her life. And we read later in the story that she survives this, this incredible destruction. I'm sorry that Yahweh prefers peace. Recognize that, that Yahweh's kindness and faithfulness to people like Rahab aren't outliers. They aren't the exceptions. This is what happens over and over and over again. And the ultimate proof of this comes centuries after the story of the Canaanites. The ultimate proof came when God himself was willing to be a victim of violence so that we could experience true and lasting peace. Because this is what I think. I think the greatest battle we ever experience isn't between geopolitical states. It isn't between a terrorist organization. It isn't between non-state actors. It's not even on a person-to-person -person level. I think, I think the greatest battle that we face is one against good and evil, of, of light and darkness, of sin and God's best. And you can use whatever word you want, but I think I see this incredible battle going on of between good and evil. And this, to me, is partly why Jesus is so compelling. See, Jesus is so compelling to me because Jesus came and was a part of this. Jesus didn't sin, but Jesus experienced the consequences of sin. Jesus was perfect, yet was in an imperfect world. 
And, and Jesus, being God's son, being God on earth, found a way to say, you know what? We have to find justice. We have to make a way forward. And these people are never going to get there on their own. The apostle Paul writes in Colossians. He writes in Colossians uh, chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. It says, for God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on a cross. I love this idea. That at the time, the most violent thing that could happen to somebody was to be crucified. And it wasn't just that they were up there and nailed and would kind of asphyxiate and suffocate and bleed out. It was that there was all this kind of process leading up to it. There was the process of torture that would lead up to it. There's the process of public humiliation. They would, they would, they would crucify someone in a public place. and there would, there would be all kinds of embarrassing things that would happen to your body through a crucifixion. Like this was a message. And through this, through the shedding of blood, through the shedding of blood, peace was found. Peace was achieved. Now to me, this is the only thing that makes sense. I read passages of the scriptures, I read passages of the Old Testament, I see violence, and I see death, and I just see destruction, and I think to myself, okay, wh where's God in this? And what, what, what makes sense to me is that God would come and not give us this moral standard of you got to do all these things and follow all these rules. God didn't come and say, you just have to become enlightened. You just have to kind of rise above. You just kind of have to, have to reach this level, and then you'll know. And what God did through Jesus was saying, I am going to make things level. I am going to remove barriers. I am going to make a way forward where there seemed to be no way forward. And I am going to allow you to come to the throne of God without fear, without second guessing, without shame. That we can approach God, this God who is just. Yes, as the Bible says, and it was so well drawn out, a God that does have a flaming sword. A God who has power immense beyond measure wants to be close to us. And so, yeah, there are passages of Scripture that make no sense to me. Or they're hard, they're troubling. But for me, what I always come back to is what Jesus did in light of all of that. What Jesus did in light of all of that. And more importantly, what Jesus did in light of me. In light of me. In light of you. Because you and I, that's our only hope. That's our only, only hope. Let me pray for us. God, we... We, I feel like I'm sometimes stumbling in the dark trying to understand.